Following the release of their multi-platinum debut album, Ooh, on the TLC tip, the all-female pop group took two years to create their sophomore album. I'm just going to interrupt here and say when uh, Jake was putting the agenda together, he did not put nearly enough O's into that ooh, so I had to edit that, and I really like how that came out. Uh, it, it, it made it worth work. the time. While their debut was a big hit, it was kind of stuck in the early 90s sound and vibe, focusing on young ladies being independent and reminding you to use condoms. When Crazy Sexy Cool hit in November of 1994, the young ladies had matured. While still having themes of being youthful, the group took on a new role of sexual dominance. They hired some of the biggest names in music to produce it. What they wound up with was the biggest selling album by a female pop group in history. Waterfalls became the sing-along song of 1995. To date, the album has moved 14 million copies worldwide and is the first diamond status album by a girl group in history. TLC created a blueprint for female groups for years to come. Today on Hidden Jukebox, 1994's Crazy Sexy Cool. And that is Crazy Sexy Cool, one word. That That is my mistake over and over again as I've been researching this album this week. I no, it's would, good. It makes it, makes it easier to Google. I would like to start by throwing my brother and co-host Matthew completely under the bus okay, here. Okay, sure. Uh, he wanted to start out this album by telling me that he really hates the production on it. So before anything else, I've got to know why, other than this was an album that came out in 1994 and R&B sounded like this in 1994. Yeah, I guess so. Like, you know, there there's a lot of music from the 80s that I love that I don't love the production on either. Like... It just, it's, there's there's like a subdued quality to it, kind of. It's, I, I think that's partially because <clears throat> the drums aren't live. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if that's what it is. It's just a lot of overproduction going on in it. Uh, most of the bass isn't live. It's, it's just keyboards and samples mostly yeah but also i think so when i when i went back you know i that was what i said after i listened to it like one time and then uh i listened to it about 10 more times uh and i think it, it's the production started to grow on me and like i sort of started to understand what was going on and like you know just how very deliberately calculatedly chill it is in the same way as like like a d'angelo record totally right and I think that we keep discussing on this podcast that these albums are time capsules of the era that they were put yes. out in. And even though what we have focused on up until now has been mostly rock records, this is totally a time capsule of late 1994, 1995, 1996, where all of the hit songs coming out were pop songs. They, they, we'd kind of moved past the whole alternative thing. Yeah, we had moved into the Mariah Carey and Vogue TLC era, where all of a sudden it had gone from this male-dominated popularity in the '90s to females taking over. Yeah, so kind of like there was, there was a time, you know, a decade before that when, uh, when Madonna was everything. Madonna had a huge hit in 1995. Yeah, no, I'm not saying Madonna ever ever really went away, but uh, you know that was that was considered a bit of a comeback hit for Madonna, right? Yeah, and it was off of uh, the League of Their Own soundtrack, if I remember correctly. She probably put it on an album as well, but it was like a one-off for so. her. Yeah. So it, it. I think it was Bedtime Stories. Was the album? Wow. You, you should go on Jeopardy because you have some knowledge <laughs> that other people would never be able to pull out their ass. Right. So 
I want to I want to come clean. I mean, you already you already threw me under the bus, but I'm going to like wedge myself further under this bus and like uh, sort of yell at the bus driver to get it moving. Um, like I had trouble connecting with this record, and I feel guilty about that, and I want to interrogate that a little bit. Like you know, it's not that I dislike it by any means. It. Uh, it's just like, you know, at this time, you know, I was listening to hip hop and I was listening to rock. And so whenever whenever we've tried to tackle an album like, you know, either either in the Jake Amster era or in the the Laura Lowe era when we did like um uh, Massive Attack, Mezzanine, like you know, it seems it seems like a crazy thing to say because this album is super accessible and super popular and so is that one. Like I I don't totally know how to approach it because i don't have enough experience and the the second thing i was going to say after throwing you under the bus was this was the first album that we picked that was really going to be a challenge for us we have picked male dominated albums to start this show out and we wanted to pick something that was all female and female empowerment and this is what we picked because it was probably the most popular female album of the 90s. Well, and also because, you know, we can't talk about 90s music without talking about 90s R&B and, you know, what better representative is there? Probably none. Right? They, they, I mean, even the male acts couldn't touch the popularity right. of this. And to to be honest... I hated this when it came out. It was not my style of music. It was not my thing. But as I've gotten older and learned to appreciate production value and learned to appreciate what it takes to make a hit, this group of women were hit makers back then. I mean, ooh, on the TLC tip was no slouch in terms of hits. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Ain't too proud to bet. Wasn't Baby, Baby, Baby on that album as well? Mm -hmm. I mean, those were some monster hits. So you can't ignore this group at all. And when you look at the uh, personnel of who they brought in to produce this album, uh, I thought maybe that listening through it, it was going to feel disjointed just by reading about it first, because there is such a wide array of talent helping them to create this album. Jermaine Dupree, Puff Daddy, Baby Face, Fife Dog, uh, from a tribe called Quest, Busta Rhymes, Andre 3000. It's even got a song written by Prince on it. That is a lot of talent on one album. And yet what we talk about with 90s albums is they tried to create something cohesive or they just weren't releasing a single, but they were putting together an album that worked as a whole. And when we did Doggy Style, we talked quite a bit about how it seems to have this flow based on creating these interludes, creating a story. And this album does the same thing where it'll have these interludes where they talk about being crazy and sexy and cool. Yes. And then we'll put another song in there about being crazy or sexy or cool. Or all of the above. And it works really, really well. Yeah, the skits skits are funny on this album. Not only are the skits funny, but they tend to have this sense of female empowerment where it's like, we're going to turn the idea of male misogyny on its head and show that females can have a little bit of fun too, can be the powerful force in a relationship, can be the dominant force in the bedroom. Yeah. That's what they took in between the songs and during the songs. 
Um, yeah, something uh, like you, we're going to talk about like who was who was influenced by this album. It's something I noticed. Um, I was listening to um, Lizzo's new album this oh, week, which is so fantastic. Good. Oh um, my gosh! And uh, and she drops she drops the phrase "crazy sexy cool" on "Like a Girl." Um, <laughs> that and, is awesome. Yeah, there's there's a direct line from this album to Lizzo. Well, we we better start listening to some stuff. Okay. I, I want to start with the what is my opinion the sexiest song ever written in history red light special yeah okay so i'm gonna pause already like forget anything any criticism i made of the production on this because like you can tell how sexy this song is going to be literally if i had played i'm going to edit this so i play a half second (laughs) clip before i interrupt and there is no ambiguity there whatsoever everybody's gonna actually orgasm in that one half half a second. second the southern route yeah i love that so much oh my god like the whole thing is is it's not thinly veiled in the slightest it it is like you go down on me i'm gonna take control in the bedroom right and it is so hot like yeah yeah it's great everything about it and this is a baby face song um we were gonna talk a little bit what's funny about this album and they did it a lot in the 90s they do it a lot today they basically brought in a bunch of writers to write the songs for them. And while that may seem like cheating to some or, no. or, or this, is, this is just how how things have always been done, particularly in uh, like in R&B and soul. Well, and major labels want hits. They yeah. they find their hit makers. Then they find somebody to put in front of those hits, sing them. You know, it's it's kind of why Millie Vanilli totally got the shaft. Oh, very much so. If if they had just been honest and been like somebody else wrote all these songs, nobody would have cared. Um, well, it wasn't it wasn't the songwriting that was the issue with Millie Vanilli. It was the lip syncing. But <laughs> right, well, I, I guess that was it. I was very young at that time. Okay, <laughs> right. But I mean, still, like that's interesting. Like, could they have gotten away with it if they were upfront about it? I don't know. Probably. Either way, back to Red Light Special. Yeah. Um, this was kept out of the number one spot only because Montel Jordan's This Is How We Do It was yes. holding the number one spot at the time and is such a good song that it couldn't get knocked out by this. But it was one of the major singles off the album. It was a major hit. And at the time, I remember thinking, can they really play this on the radio? Yeah. It is like too hot for TV. And and at the time <laughs> as well, it was the era of videos and they're making these sexy videos with these three beautiful black women 
kind of taking charge of everything. Um, I was going to say it was this around the same time as Wicked Game, but no, this was later. Because oh, oh, I remember yeah, totally. having all the same all the same feelings about the Wicked Game video. <laughs> <laughs> that was way too early. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, I think if, if our, our mom had walked in while we were watching that, she would have been like, no, no, absolutely not. <laughs> right. Turn it off. <laughs> 1989 was Wicked oh, Game. Yeah, right. Definitely yeah. would have walked in and said, turn it off. <laughs> um, on, on the podcast, We Hate Movies, they have a, uh, like, a viewer mail segment and they uh, always have, they have a catchphrase, uh, uh, the, uh, what are you watching moment where someone comes in, <laughs> like, whether it's, <laughs> actually something you're not supposed to be watching or just like you know that video just happened to come on it's like what are you watching well i don't want to pretend like uh they were the first group or female act to to do this as though they were some groundbreaking right. thing madonna in the 80s i mean like a virgin was what 1984 and everybody was completely shocked by that janet jackson uh on control was taking a lot of themes of female empowerment doing this same sort of thing and and that was 80s and it was this same east coast vibe well and i mean you can you can definitely draw a line from here back to like Bessie Smith and Ma Rainey also like you know that was that was i think like the the original like you know sexually explicit female empowerment music yeah. although you should never call anything original because probably that had precursors also no but i was definitely thinking that t boz is the ma rainey of tlc <laughs> sure <laughs> what, what was the first song that you picked off this album uh, the first song that i picked is uh, a little something called creep The song's called Creep and was one, okay. one of th three hits in the 90s. I was just going to say 90s. exactly the same thing. How is it possible that there were three Major. huge hit songs in the 90s all called Creep? I, is I, there any example of anything like this from where there are three three hit songs with the same name? Didn't somebody else write a song called Suspicious Minds besides Elvis Presley? No. No, I'm just okay. kidding. Um, <laughs> I, I think. I mean, there was... Was the Paul McCartney song called Waterfalls also? We'll get to this. I I didn't know there's a Paul McCartney song called Waterfalls. Apparently, TLC's Waterfalls was probably somewhat inspired by a Paul McCartney song, which which opens with the line like, uh, don't, uh, don't jump into waterfalls, stick to the lake. Nope, don't know it. Yeah. I, I feel so embarrassed now. <laughs> um, so, Creep was... Uh, 
the first certifiable major hit off this album. Starting early 95, it spent four weeks at number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it like, like we said, it did not put them on the map, but it was obvious this was going to be a huge album. Yeah. Ba- back then, they tracked uh, sales of singles a lot better, and this single sold 1.4 million copies in the U.S. Yeah. alone. Take that, Boogie with a Hoodie. <laughs> um, wait, is there some way we can work in talking a little bit about Old Town Road into into this podcast? <laughs> I. I don't know how that song has wound up everywhere in the course of three weeks. I do because it's great. But but you know what's going to happen is we're going to talk about that song twice on this podcast, and then somebody's going to listen to this podcast years later and go, "What the hell is Old Town Road?" Yeah, I don't know, man. <laughs> it's so good; it's going to stick around forever. It's but, like Wicked Game. <laughs> I bet you can hear Wicked Game on soft rock radio. Totally. What what was that Alana Miles song? I still hear that uh, all the Black time. Black Velvet. Oh yeah. yeah. I, man, you go to karaoke, somebody's going to sing Black Velvet. Yes, possibly me. <laughs> uh so Creep, what is this song about? T-Boz gave uh did an interview with Billboard in uh, 2015 uh, in which she said uh, uh that she has never told the uh the guy that the song was about that it was about him, but when I see him, I'm going to be like, "Guess what? This song was about you." I do not have any follow-up on this story. Does that mean that, does that further, mean that, further news as events warrant? Uh, does that mean that she was with so many guys at that time? It's like he would never guess. I mean, he was in a line of 20 hmm. men. And- well, I don't know. I mean, not not that there would be anything wrong with that. It brings up an interesting point. You think about male dominated bands during the 80s especially and how you'd hear these stories about lines of attractive women waiting to get backstage right. and, and all of the debauchery and sex that would go on backstage right led zeppelin did something with a fish right does Rolling did, Stones, did these, i don't know did these things happen at a tlc show would they perform live and then be like find all the hot men and bring them backstage and we're gonna uh make them go south Make yeah, lead them down the southern route. Yeah, they're, they're, they put an arrow up on the wall that's just a southern route this way. <laughs> I don't know. I hope so. It, it's it's like that would be a high level of female empowerment, and I don't want to put it past them. Maybe they were like that. I mean, as as long as you know they would use protection. That's true. Uh, this is a good time to talk about. I didn't notice it until I read about it later, but there is a severe lack of. L on this TLC album. So Left Eye, the reason this album took two years to record and come out after their debut, even though they weren't really touring, is Left Eye went through some uh, domestic violence issues. Apparently, she went through a high level of alcoholism, and she is conspicuously absent from a lot of stuff on this album. And when you listen to the singles, they specifically chose singles that she was on so, so that she could be apparent as part of the band still but you listen to the album all the way through and she's missing from there and and left eye adds this level of what i call street cred to this to this band because she is the rap voice of the band yes yeah and her verse on on waterfalls is great it's it's amazing um yeah so i think i i feel like t-boz is delivering the the majority of the vocals overall on the album and 
I'm trying. So when I was listening to Creep, I'm trying to think of like what is, what is like the the way to talk about her voice that doesn't sound like a backhanded compliment, because like what makes it, go ahead. This is what I've been thinking about listening to this album over and over again. She makes vocal fry an okay thing to do somehow. Everything she sings tends to have this gravelly sound to it. Yeah. But it's cool. Um, yeah, but there are there are notes in, in that massive hit song that are frankly out of key. Um and but but like she makes it work. Like there's this there's this lazy like you know Okay, this is so hard to to sound, not sound like I'm shitting on like you know a this uh, beloved uh, you know singer who who I think is a great singer despite you know she makes she makes what would be flaws in a less talented singer into advantages. Well, nobody invited Madonna to be a, a, a judge on American Idol. She was not a talented vocalist by any means for most people who listen to her, but she performed hit songs. Yeah. So uh, maybe some of the notes are off. I don't think that's what it takes to be a, a superstar is to be perfect every time. No, of course not. I I think that, that it's this great style of songwriting that appealed to a mass audience that was working for them. No, that's my point, that like if you replaced her with like a technically correct singer, that would not improve the song. No, not in the slightest. And it would probably take away from what makes the song, which is her own style. Yeah. Uh, each of them has their own personality and is kind of what made this this group better as a whole than the sum of its parts. Yes. It's it's why they never did anything after Left Eye passed away. Rest in peace, Left Eye. Yes. Uh, I mean, they did have a comeback album like within the last couple of years, which I haven't listened to. They did? Yeah. Did they find somebody else with the name L? Boy, that's a good question. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not going to stop the show to La look this up. La Larry Q. Johnson. Yes. T-Boz, Larry, and Chili. Yep. <laughs> It was it was a really surprising change in direction for them, but they made it work. He he, he sounded a lot like uh, Tiny Tim. <laughs> God. <laughs> uh, can we listen to Waterfalls now? Yes, we can. If there's someone listening to this who's like, hmm, I wonder what the chorus of that song sounds like. <laughs> I just love the way she goes, listen to me. Yep. <laughs> um, so I there are a lot of interesting things about this song. First of all, um, I uh, I wanted to like read some stuff that people were saying about it. So I Googled the phrase waterfall analysis, and this is what I learned. 
A waterfall chart is a form of data visualization that helps in understanding the cumulative effect of sequentially introduced positive or negative values. These intermediate values can either be time-based or category-based, and like all data visualizations, they can lead to overconfidence about unpredictable future events, which is why you should not go chasing them. Um, do, so this, do, you, do you think that's what they were thinking of and or reading when they wrote this song? I think so. Um, so this won the uh, the uh, video of the year at the MTA, uh, MTA the MTV Video Music Awards, um, beating out Weezer's Buddy Holly and Green Day's Basket Case. One, so one thing we've done on the show and one that I'm sure we will. Yep. Um, it was directed by F. Gary Gray, uh, who went on to, I mean, he directed a ton of videos, but he directed um, Friday and- uh, One of my favorite movies of all Straight time. Straight Out of Compton and um, uh, Fate of the Furious. Yes, he he's done some action movies, and then he does some uh, African-American themed movies. Yeah. Um, so uh, T-Boz in The Guardian 2018, like, it seems like it's, it, maybe we should have, like, tried to score a T-Boz interview for this episode, because uh, she's she, out there. Yeah, she's easy to access these days. I always loved what you'd call alternative music. Nirvana, Kurt Cobain, Duran Duran, Billy Idol, Benny and the Jets by Elton John was my thing. I was born in Iowa and moved to Atlanta when I was a child. Every time I tell people I'm from Iowa, they go, there's black people there? I actually have a t-shirt that says, yes, there are black people in Iowa. <laughs> I wanted Waterfalls to be our version of alternative music. When I heard an early version, I thought, my God, this is perfect. It was so left of what we'd done on our first album, it was amazeballs. When we had finished recording it, we played it for Clive Davies, the big kahuna at the label. He was the boss of Arista, which distributed our label, La Face. He didn't like it. He said it was too deep. He didn't think people would bump up the street to it. And I, I totally get why, why the idiot at the label would say that about this song which is a very serious song that's also a lot of fun well so i wish that we could get to uh left eye's verse on this because she as we mentioned she has this amazing rap verse on on this song we can do that but a lot of the stuff on this album is Babyface or Jermaine Dupri, and this song is credited to a group called Organized Noise, which was another Atlanta-based production company that uh, featured a couple of me members that I don't know, but also Sleepy Brown, who worked with Outkast. Mm -hmm. Andre 3000 is also on this album. So this really comes from this Atlanta-based yeah. rap and hip-hop and R&B phase that was happening at the time that still puts out hits to this day yeah uh it, it's a separate facet from the new york scene that was going on it was kind of its own thing and was creating its own sound which was more of an r&b sound and less of this hip-hop that that we were seeing out of new york and out of the la area mm -hmm. at the time yeah this was this was the first hit song to mention aids i did not know that yeah not a queen song not a nope. Huh? Where does it mention AIDS in this song? Um, okay, so it's it's a little bit subtle. His health is fading, and he doesn't know why. Three letters took him to his final resting place. So it's about HIV. Oh, I thought it was AID. Yeah. Um. So, uh, like, I don't think I realized the extent to which this was like a serious issues song until I listened to it a bunch of times in the last couple of weeks, which is dumb. Okay. Yeah, it, it's it's definitely a serious issue song, and I realized it when it came out. This song was everywhere in yeah. 1995. Yeah, 11 weeks at number one, is that right? I think that's Eight correct. Weeks, something like that. It, it, it was- A lot of weeks. It was a lot of weeks for one song, and 
still to this day, it's another one of those karaoke songs where you go to a karaoke bar and you're going to hear somebody sing this. Everybody knows the lyrics to to the chorus of it, like you said. It was a major, major hit. And to say that it beat out these rock records for video of the year, it was this movement away from what had been a a rock-dominated scene for about four years into what became a pop-dominated scene. This started opening the door for people like Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, Destiny's Child, these huge female hitmakers. Mariah Carey had already been around but had some major hits after this. It, It was showing these labels that you didn't have to have a male-dominated uh, catalog in order to right. produce a ton of money. Yeah. And and when you look at the charts from 1995, as I was mentioning, it is something like 35 out of 52 weeks were female-fronted artists huh. at number one. Yeah. Okay. I was wondering when you're talking about, like, like is that, like, I see, like, the traje- trajectory you're talking about with the bands, but, like, is this anecdotal or is, like, is there actual, like, data to back it up? And there, it sounds like there is. Mariah Carey, Fantasy, Madonna, Take a Bow, both Creep and Waterfalls, Whitney Houston, Exhale, and there was another song featuring TLC or featuring Mariah Carey by Boys to Men mm-hmm. that that was a big hit at that time that was also on at number 1 during that year. Yeah. I know what, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. So so it was a very female dominated year after 1994 being a mostly male dominated right. year. Okay. And and I talk about this album as a 1995 album even though it came out in November of 1994 because sure. it really didn't hit until 1995. And and that's when it dominated the charts. Yeah. Boy, I like, when I was listening to this, like, I, I, I went back and listened to some of fan mail also, and uh, I uh, brought me right back to, like, 98, 99. So that fan mail was 99, right? Yeah. Um, we, were, we were living in New York when No Scrubs came out and, like, just heard it, like, coming out of, like, cars everywhere. And that song made that entire album. Yeah. I mean, it... The the album didn't have any other big hits off it, but was still a bigger seller than Ooh on the TLC tip. Yep. Um, so the next song I picked was apparently one of the singles off of the album, but I don't remember ever hearing it on the radio. It's another babyface song called Digging on You. Baby, baby. 
Um, have you noticed that the chorus comes in at like a minute and five seconds on pretty much every song? Uh, not only that, but the songs on this album, aside from the interludes, four minutes and 28 seconds, four minutes and 14 seconds, four minutes and 14 seconds, mm-hmm. four minutes and four seconds, <laughs> four minutes and 39 seconds, four minutes. And, I mean, hit factory. Yeah, they uh, they they had the whole verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge chorus out down yes now i i could see by what was happening with your head and neck area during the song that that you are with me i for me um when she says i was chilling with my kool-aid when miss chili came to relay that's my favorite moment on the whole record i I mean (laughs) to think that that anybody would write that lyric and go yeah let's leave that in there that that's great I also like, I also love the chorus when they go baby ba- ooh baby baby <laughs> like they <laughs> they cut themselves yes. off. It's so entertaining. Um yes, I like I like imagining what the moment was actually like when Miss Chili came to relay like I <laughs> I have a message for you from that guy. <laughs> he said the following. <laughs> you are uh, you are the finest thing he's ever seen. <laughs> he he might even come over here because he's digging on you. But he might not. He's very shy. <laughs> um, I just want to talk about the songwriting on this a little bit. Babyface had this way of taking what was essentially pop and jazz type of changes and turning them into hit songs. So this song is using this one, four, five pattern and then takes a turn at the end of, of each line of the verse. It's a really interesting way of taking jazz changes and making them into a pop song. And he does that very, very well. And once again, this is me taking my goddamn music degree to this and going... Right, so what what makes them jazz changes? So jazz is built on these 2-5-1 patterns, 1-4-5 patterns, which is more of a blues type of thing. Mm -hmm. And a lot of... Uh, the rock music that we were seeing coming out of that day were four chord changes that didn't follow that at all. Like they might be one, four, two, five, but not these turnarounds that work as kind of uh, resolutions. Yeah, which which is a term used a lot in jazz is how does a chord resolve right. back to the one? Babyface is using a lot of different ways of switching around the chord patterns to resolve back to what our ear hears. Cadences, we might call them. That works, too. Yeah. This song does it really well, which is why I picked it. He is just a hit factory. I mean, he was able to take a a song with Eric Clapton and turn it into a hit. Wait. (laughs) Nothing you just said made made sense. (laughs) I knew I was going to get called out on that the second I said it. (laughs) <laughs> You're right. Like um, that okay, guy didn't so, know how to write a hit to exactly. save his life. <laughs> so what? Okay, two questions. What was the what was the Eric Clapton Babyface song? Change the world, of course. Okay, and didn't Babyface have one big hit where like as Babyface? He did. So so I can't remember what the song I was. I can't of remember course. either, and I was just trying to look it up and couldn't even find it. But but everybody knows who Babyface yeah, yeah. is. Everybody knows who Jermaine Dupri is. There are plenty of other songwriters that are not well known, but have written some huge songs. We were just talking about the guy from Semisonic, right, who, right, right, who's written some major, major yes. songs. Um, and and you, the and, guy, 
he's he's like in the same category as the guy from Geggy Ta. Right, right. So uh, the guy from from Semisonic, Dan Wilson, has written some huge hits. And you say Dan Wilson, and most people just think of the old catcher for the Seattle Mariners. Yes. Um, the guy from Gay, maybe we already talked about this one, Greg Kirsten. Um, when I was in college in like 91, um, uh, I guess, no, it was later than that, uh, 90, 94, um, uh, Geggy Taub was this band from Pomona, California with these two guys who dressed up in jumpsuits. I think maybe one had a blue jumpsuit and one had a red jumpsuit. That's not an original idea. I, I understand. Um, and we, we they played a show at like the the campus uh, like you know festival. Uh, and their one song that people would sing along with was a, a really obnoxiously catchy earworm about like uh, to say like thank you to the guy who let me change lanes on the four hundred five something like that. I hate this band. <laughs> I yeah, it was it was the kind of thing. It made me mad. <laughs> <laughs> I've mellowed since then. Like probably, I would think they were fine now. Uh, <laughs> but, I, but I bought a couple of jumpsuits. Uh, and, and if you ran into the guy, you'd be like, "God, I used to think you were a son of a bitch, but I'm okay with you now." <laughs> That's what I would say. Like, thanks. <laughs> um, so, wait, more about Greg Kirsten for a minute. Um, so I uh, I went to see. He later um, formed a band called uh, The Bird and the Bee with Inara George, uh, which is a very good pop band. And um, I went to see them play at Numos in Seattle a couple of years ago. And I was thinking, hmm, I wonder if Greg, like, uh, it's funny that I'm going to go see this band that's going to include um, Greg Kirsten, like, the extremely wealthy, uh, successful songwriter who, like, you know, wrote, uh, uh, like, both of Adele's biggest hits, I think. Yep. Uh, he was not there. What? <laughs> yeah, he, he, didn't, he didn't show up for his own band show. How, how many people showed up to the show? <laughs> a bunch. Oh. I mean, I no no one was there specifically to see him because like who gives a shit? But he's, he's not the singer. <laughs> you don't think that there's a bunch of people like us who do research on who writes songs and goes, oh, Adele's songwriter is going to be in town. We have to go see him and see if he sounds just like Adele. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. When I got there and and he wasn't there, I was like, hello. <laughs> That, okay. was a, that was a terrible joke. Thank you. Okay, so uh, we can go back to TLC anytime. <laughs> okay, uh, let's listen to If I Was Your Girlfriend, because this one is, uh, yeah, this one's an interesting one. Yeah. cover of a Prince song, and it's a pretty faithful cover in a lot of ways, um, in terms of both the lyrical content and the vocal delivery, although uh, they cut the Prince song, it, it's a very complex Prince song, like lyrically, like it's it's a fascinating song, like it goes, there's, 
it, it's Prince at his like most deep exploration of like of gender, um, because he's singing it in in kind of a, a uh, modified uh, like you know he's he's going through like a voice processor to uh, to make his voice sound more like a female voice, and it's he I feel like he sort of ends up feeling like I'm not sure like like. Do do I want to be your girlfriend just just like to know, get to be closer to you or do I actually like want to be a girl? This song I think drops some of that and uh, and changes one of the lyrics from the original because um, uh, Prince Prince says uh, if I was your girlfriend would you remember to tell me all the things you forgot when I was your man? And the TLC version is uh, would you remember to tell me all the things you forgot if I was your man? I don't really understand what that means. I don't either. Okay, um, so. One something this made me think about is, um, and uh, like I've, I think the first time I kind of came to this idea was uh, when I heard Tiffany's cover of uh, of the Beatles song. um, I saw her standing there. I had no idea that Tiffany covered. I saw her standing there. Yeah, but it but change it to I saw him standing there. Okay. So I remember thinking at the time. Like and this was this I was pretty young that like that there was some some missed opportunity there and that if you cover a so so I'm gonna I'm gonna give the line to um there like comedian Joel Kim Booster on Twitter who said if you're covering someone else's love song don't change the pronouns you fucking coward that song is about a man and you're gay for the next three minutes <laughs> I agree with this so strongly like it's. <sighs> There is something so, and, and I'm not saying that that TLC really did this with this song because, like, there's still some ambiguity in the song. Um, what about Greg but, Kirsten writing songs for Adele? No, no, no. But but cover. We're talking specifically about a cover. Okay. So so like you know I um, let, let's think of an example. Like what's what's a what's a super like uh, you know a, a female perspective uh, you know a, a female. I was, mo- I was more thinking Girls, Girls, Girls by Motley Crue. Sure. Okay. So, so yeah. So like, um, you know, if, uh, who, you know, I don't know this, this is, this has gotten less to be less of an issue, I think as like, um, you know, the, the issue of like gender norms have in, uh, in pop music, people are starting to push back against that a lot more, which, which is great. I just don't want to hear someone cover a song and uh, very like change the pronouns in in uh, what really always comes off to me as like you know no homo here kind of way. Right. Um, you know it's it's not fair to the song in some way. Not unless, in my opinion, you change up the song and the way that sure. you're doing it a lot. Like if you completely change the vocal pattern, like it's just the lyrics, or you you use the chord changes but you completely change the feel of the song make it your own then maybe you can change the the vocals a little bit but if you're doing a fair and spot-on cover then yeah like if if i'm at karaoke i can't believe i said karaoke three times in this one episode (laughs) yeah and i'm singing a female song i'm not going to change the lyrics to reflect my my own position if i if i'm gonna sing what a man i i'm not gonna change it to what a gal if i'm gonna sing man i feel like a woman by shania twain i'm not gonna sing woman i feel like a man (laughs) right but like even even if it's not kind of like a a a kitschy kind of thing like even even if it's like a heartfelt song i feel the same way 
God, now I've got to go do Man, I Feel Like a Woman at karaoke. Absolutely. Uh, you should. Sounds so good. Okay. Is so, that... Do we have any more? I, I want to listen to Switch really quick. Oh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. some reason at least i would logically that you put a bunch of different songwriters and producers on one album and it's going to come out totally disjointed right like it's going to sound like a total mess you're going to go to one track and it's going to have one sound and you're going to go to the next track and it's going to be completely different in terms of processing in terms of whether you use live instruments but this album st- still has a flow to it because i think there's a lot to be said about the true identity of the music is not the songwriters, it's TLC. Right. And that's amazing that they can put together an album with so much talent on it outside of their own and still make it theirs. Yeah, although I'm going to I'm going to assume there's also someone like overseeing uh the like the the general contractor for the album uh you know, who I don't know if they get like producer credit on the whole album, but like someone someone is sequencing the album and is is uh, kind of just sanity checking to make sure that the pieces fit together. And I'm sure they're doing some of that. I'm pretty sure they do some of that. And Jermaine Dupree does yeah. most of that because he did most of their first album. Nevertheless, it's still like taking somebody else's production and saying, yeah, I've got to switch this up. Switch. switch. Uh, so that it's got some sort of continuity to it. Um, so I wanted to I wanted to look up the the TLC 2017 comeback album and see who was on it. Um, so I searched Wikipedia for TLC 2017. Unfortunately, what came up was TLC Table Tables, Ladders, and Chairs 2017. Huge, huge Tables, hit. Ladders, and Chairs 2017 was a professional wrestling pay per view event produced by <laughs> WWE for the Raw brand. <laughs> It took place on October 22nd, 2017 at the Target Center in Minneapolis. It was the ninth event under the TLC Tables, Ladders, and Chairs chronology. What I came away from this with is, you know, the songs The songs that I didn't really know before that are going to stick with me are definitely, uh, is it called Red Light Special? You didn't know Red Light Special before no. this? Oh my God. I'm I'm a bad man. Yeah, well, you're going to be a bad man the more you listen to that song. No, I, I'm going to be a good man the more I listen to that song. <laughs> um, and uh, and I, I just kind of want to put that one uh, couplet from "Digging on You" on repeat, <laughs> chilling with my Kool Aid. Yeah, I'm not I'm not I'm not being sarcastic at all. Like I I genuinely love that. <laughs> uh, it's I think- like there's such like. 
there, there's so much like like friendship and companionship captured in there, just like about how Chili is just going to wander over with a message. I I don't know. I, I want to end this by saying I just watched Beyonce's Homecoming, which is the new special on yes, Netflix. Yes, I have not watched it yet. Which is amazing. If anybody wants a clinic on how to put on a huge show, it is incredible what that woman pulled off. But partway through the show, the other members of Destiny's Child come out, uh-huh. and it's like they haven't missed a beat. And you can really see the camaraderie and that they're still friends. And you get the vibe from TLC that these three women were friends before they decided to put together a band. Yes. It, it wasn't like New Kids on the Block or these And canned- I, I don't actually think that is the case. I think they like they responded to like an ad for someone putting together a girl group. Which, which is a possibility, but they found a bond yeah, yeah. as a group together and, and really worked well as this trio who who seemed to be a team teaming up to be female empowerment as yeah. it was. This is something I, I wonder about sometimes. Like if you're if you're like a huge band that uh, you know has been broken up for fifteen years or whatever and, and wants to put on a reunion tour, like I feel like if it were me, I would I would get, be like, okay, yeah, like I, I wanna I, I need that money, I need the adulation, let's do this reunion tour. And then right after that I'd be like, oh shit, I don't know if I know how to play in this band anymore. <laughs> like I I just realized like the incredible mountain of skills I'm going to have to reacquire in order to pull this off. Do you think do you think like Don Henley goes through that? I, I, I don't know about Don Henley. He probably just does another solo tour, yeah, but okay. I've been through this where I've Asked to uh-huh. do re- been asked to do reunion shows with bands, and I I go back to the music and go, wow, I don't remember how to play a single lick of any of these songs. I've got to reteach myself everything. Yeah, but you're the bass player, so it's kind of duh 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 duh. Wow, that is the most unfair thing you've ever said to me. I know it was just right there, and I couldn't help myself. <laughs> well, <laughs> all I, right, I think that's enough about TLC for the week. Yep. Do we? We had like a list of albums we were going to do. Does this? Does this wrap it up for our first six, or it, was this number five? This. This was number six. This was number six. Okay. Yeah. So, so if, if any of the listeners have suggestions, I've got a lot so far. Uh huh. I would say about half of them. I'm like, that's a great idea, and half of them, I'm like. That that's what you want to hear us talk about. I'm gonna throw one more person besides Matthew under the bus. We will not be doing jewel pieces of you. Sorry, Katie. How about something by Stained? Um, not gonna do Stained either. We might do Corn. Yeah, I would be interested to do Corn. Um, and which, I, which sounds like a drug when I put it that way. And I've been asked twice now to do Third Eye Blind self-titled album, so it might get thrown in there. I I would try. I, I wish you would step back from that ledge, yeah, my I friend. Know. Yeah, Corn though, like, I, I feel like Corn and I kind of came up together because uh, when Corn started, I was going to college in the Inland Empire, not far from where Corn was born. I, I remember because you're like, you've got to listen to this. This is the funniest shit I've ever heard in my life. And it was the beginning of their debut album when Jonathan Davis goes, are you ready? <laughs> and I was. I was ready. I, w- I wasn't ready. But maybe I'm ready now is what I'm saying. All right. You can find us at hiddenjukebox.com and facebook.com slash hiddenjukebox. Uh, feel free to anytime let us know what uh, what you want us to talk about. Um, I, I want to do the uh, – what what was my idea <laughs> that uh, we should pick like a, uh, like a top album, uh, favorite album from each year of the 90s? 
We shouldn't. We haven't really got into into the later '90s yet. That's true. I noticed that too. It, it's harder to differentiate between the '90s and 2000s at that point. But it's it's all fair game, right? I mean, we may actually do in sync. I think they were around in 1999. I think you're right. Okay. All right. See you next time. I'm Matthew Amster Burton, and I'm Jake Amster.